Stop it! Don't open that door! Welcome to episode 18 of the Masters of Unlocking podcast. Today, it's an early morning. I have some coffee, but it's still early. That's Coffee's not helping too much. So I'm going to cut the rambling that I normally do on my intros and get directly into what you're listening to. So the Masters of Unlocking podcast, we are a different kind of video game podcast. Uh, one of us is an author, game lover, and video game YouTuber. That's me. The other is a collector and recovering game store owner. That's him, Scott. We delve collectively into the business, economics, and psychology of video games. That's kind of what makes us different. We're not just a a podcast talking about video games and how great they are and how fun they are. You know that. You're listening to this. Of course you do. We're here to maybe help you appreciate games through a different light, through the business light. Maybe you're one of those gamers who hates everything that EA does because they're a horrible, terrible corporation. Um, And while that may be partly true, who knows? Uh, maybe there is something to enjoy or love about that side of the uh, of the gaming world as well. You know, if we can better understand the business side, then maybe we can better empathize with the decisions they're making. Um, so I guess Scott is playing the role of the evil corporation on this this discussion here. Uh, <laughs> and if we can dive into, uh, you know, human stories, human interest stories and things like that and try to understand the philosophy or the psychology behind uh, people and everything, then maybe we can have some fun uncovering uh, a deeper love for video games that way as well. So specifically on this episode, what are we going to talk about? Well, I'll tell you what, first what we won't be talking about. At least I don't think so. I didn't really run this by Scott, but uh, I have no interest in it. And that's, uh, we won't be talking about Trump's meeting with video game reps to talk about violence in video games That ha- because, you know, that already happened back in 1993. Hashtag um, old so. news. <laughs> exactly. So we don't need to, so we won't. Uh, But we will be talking about the handheld LCD games of the 1980s and 90s now being playable online, which is something I had no idea I wanted until I heard it. Uh, We'll probably talk about how awful those games still are, I'm sure. Uh, Also, we're going to talk about the inside pre-order, the game inside pre-order. You'll definitely want to hear what we have to say about this, I assume, because uh, it's, it's... it's very, very intriguing, and I know this is kind of hashtag old news, uh, not quite 1993, but it's still something I would be remiss if we didn't talk about. And for our main event, we're going to talk about the recent round of video game Hall of Fame finalists, and which games we feel should be inducted into the video game Hall of Fame. With that being said, how are you, Scott? I haven't let you talk yet. You know, I was wondering <laughs> what was going to happen. No, I, I take over this podcast on several occasions. I'm doing doing quite well. It's weird to be recording this podcast, looking out the window and seeing blue skies. Yeah, you, you, you're usually in a bunker. I, I'm usually in a bunker, yes. We usually <laughs> record at night, and we all know that East Coast zombies come out at night. So as soon as that sun dips below the horizon, I retreat to my bunker. I, I arm all of the uh, the turrets that protect my bunker. <laughs> but now it's you know it's zombie-free because it's the light of day. And if you're having to rearm your turrets every night, that should go and tell our listeners just how many zombies there are attacking you. I mean, you go through a lot of ammo. Endless hordes. It's like horde mode. (laughs) Well, I'm glad we're not having to wrestle with that. It probably makes editing this thing quite a bit easier when you don't have the background uh, moaning and groaning from zombies. So Audacity really needs to add in a chain gun removal filter. (laughs) I I just don't understand why they haven't had that yet. 
Yeah, I guess I forgot to real re- I forgot to remember that your uh, your bunker doesn't have very good soundproofing. You know, it's 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 nuclear bomb proof, but mm-hmm. for some reason, sounds can get through. Yeah, the acoustic wasn't designed to keep acoustics out. That's uh, <laughs> those old bunker. They need to up their game on that. So maybe we need to hire Monster to do some uh, bunker design. <laughs> Let's talk about. Oh, when I should talk about video games. No, well, y- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always try to find good ways to segue things, and, and frequent listeners will know my segues are never good. So I think because the early morning, the the lack of a full cup of coffee yet probably made me just accept that it wasn't going to happen. And, and so I just jumped right into playlists. This thing is going off the rails quickly because I haven't had any <laughs> coffee yet. I've been sick for two days, so I've just been hydrating with water and there's no caffeine in water. Ugh. Yeah, I, I don't recommend it. I definitely Ugh. do not recommend it. Gross. Yeah, I I, oh I understand God. why ancient man decided to run this stuff through you know roasted beans because it's not drinkable without that. Oh man, I I, I envy or I don't envy you. I pity you. Yeah, God, I don't even have words right this morning. It's no good. Uh, yeah. So what have you been playing uh, this uh, last couple of weeks? Well, really, my I've been swamped at work. So the the last thing I actually played was from our discussion of last week, which is What Remains of Edith Finch. Um, and if you haven't listened to last week's episode, definitely go back and check out episode 17. Caleb did a fantastic interview with Ian Dallas from Giant Sparrow, um, the creative director of What Remains of Edith Finch. And then after the interview, Caleb and I do a little bit of chatting about what we thought of the game. Um, I had a blast with it. I really enjoyed it. Um, but go check out that episode if you haven't done so already. But there are spoilers, so if you haven't played What Remains of Edith Finch, do that first. It's a quick play, and then go listen to the episode. Yes. Uh, I, I I concur. You should definitely listen to it because I did an okay job with that interview. Um, I, I Every time I, I've, I've actually replayed the game uh, again since our interview, which I think makes four playthroughs for me. It's a very short game, so not not that impressive, really. But every time I play it, um, I, I, I just am reminded about how much I want to explore just everything about that game even more. And I'm doing this concurrently. I, I replayed those games concurrently as I continue to read and review on my YouTube channel um, all of the Boss Fight books releases. So there's like 18 books or so. But as I'm reading those books and, and seeing what can be done when someone dedicates a long-form narrative to a game, um, when I see how that works and then I play What Remains of Edith Finch, I think, gosh, What Remains of Edith Finch needs to have a Boss Fight books release. I anticipate it's probably too new for the publishers to even care about doing that. Most of the boss fight books have some sort of history associated with them, or the games featured in boss fight books have some sort of history associated with them. So maybe in a decade or so, we'll look back and, and there'll be a reason to create a long-form uh, book about it. But it just seems ripe for it. So at least it seems more ripe than some of the other choices that uh, have been made for boss fight books releases. I, there's some... Uh, there's a lot of games in that series that you look at and you're like, how could they make an entire book about that? And they always do successfully. So I guess, you know, that's just to say that, uh, that you can, I guess, mine any game for a lot of information and a lot of details and things like that. So yeah. What remains of you Finch? It's a good game. Absolutely. Um, so as for me, um, I dug into my, I'm on a, I'm on a game buying hiatus, uh, and I so I dug into a couple of games from my backlog, uh, the Stanley Parable, um, which kind of came out of nowhere. I was talking with a coworker at work, and I was, and somehow we got on the conversation of uh, of this game, and I realized that I don't think I ever 
gave enough time to it. Uh, he was bringing up a lot of things about the game that I didn't remember when I first played it years ago. Um, and so it made me think that maybe I just didn't extract from that game as much as I should have. I didn't play it long enough. So I did go back and I pumped another probably two or three hours into it, which for this game is several playthroughs. The Every playthrough is literally just minutes long. It's that kind of game. Um, so it was a lot of fun, man. I, 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 I wish I would have paid more attention when I first played it. I think I tossed it aside as, as nothing special the first time I played it. But man, there's a lot of good stuff going on in that game. So anyone who hasn't played it, I highly recommend going back. I'm guessing, Scott, you haven't played it because it is digital only. Ah, uh, that's what uh, I was going to ask. I was going to say, you know, <laughs> I haven't played it. Tell me more. But uh, yeah, you told me enough. Um, I'll, I'll... <laughs> there is a physical uh, indie box at a physical PC release, but indie box being indie box and 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 their business model, um, it's limited. So it's not. So I doubt you can find copies of it anymore. So. Yeah, um, and then I also have started playing Okami HD, a game that uh, I didn't expect much from, um, but lo and behold, I'm 13 hours into it and have no plans on stopping. And 13 hours for me in a game, it takes a special game for me to give it 13 hours, um, and it, it was it's just very, very, very great. I, I was not expecting what I'm expecting, right? It's sort of a, a, a cel-shaded kind of look, so think like Sly Cooper uh, from the PS2 days. Um, that's the kind of look it has. And I didn't realize I missed that look until I started playing Okami HD. Uh, cause that was a really good look. That's kind of a look that I semi grew up, it, grew up with. Um, it, it, I, I guess it kind of, I was in college, I guess, kind of when it became really, really popular. So, um, but I, I love the look, uh, and it's a funnier game than I thought it was. I think I was expecting something just sort of stagnant, uh, with a huge focus on this gimmick of being able to use the, uh, the interface to uh, it, it was originally, I think, a 3DS game or a DS game, um, and you would use the stylus to actually paint on the screen, and that painting mechanic would do things in the game, and so it felt a little gimmicky, but it actually isn't. Uh, that gimmick is there, but it doesn't. It, it's and it's it's used a lot, but the rest of the game is so fun and so interesting it, that you kind of don't really care. Um, and it actually works pretty well on the PS4, which is what I'm playing it on. Um, the analog sticks actually do quite well for the very basic kind of maneuvers that you need to do with this paintbrush. Um, there's not a lot of, you know, it, detail that you need to actually be able to accomplish. They're pretty much broad strokes, uh, so to speak. Um, and so it's a lot of fun. I'm having a ton of fun with it. Have you ever played Okami HD? No, I haven't. Actually, it's been something that I've wanted to play for a long time. It actually initially came out on the PS2. Ah, um, thank you. And then was quickly ported over to the Wii because of, for the exact reason you mentioned, everybody thought, oh, this would be great with the Wii because of the painting mechanic. Um, so it was originally developed for just a standard controller, which is probably why it, it translates mm. so well. Mm -hmm. um, but like you, I, I wouldn't have expected it to be comedic at all. Um, I always thought of it as sort of a, uh artsy, fartsy, you know, think piece type thing which is way too highbrow for my neanderthalithic <laughs> tastes um but i i've i've got several different versions of it they seem to keep remaking it and i don't think any of them are are different other than okamiden which i think is a sequel that was on the ds um, but i think everything else every other iteration of it was just a remake of the original kami 
but definitely something that I want to check out at some point. I'm glad to hear you're having fun with it. I think one of my favorite Okami little tidbits was when they released the game for the Wii, the cover art, they actually used a an IGN. They copied an IGN picture that actually has the IGN watermark logo on it. No way. So when you look at the cover, if you look really closely, right in front of, I think it's the dog's face, if I, or the wolf's face, if I remember correctly, um, just sort of on the right side of the the cover art you can see the the um ign watermark logo on the cover <laughs> and which version was that it's the wii version it's right <laughs> uh it, it's it features a blue backdrop with the the wolf kind of growling off to the to the right and right in front of his mouth is the logo <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> oops oops <laughs> Oh man, and I can say I can tell you, you know, you mentioned earlier you thought it kind of being an artsy fartsy kind of game um with and I think you may I think you said the word deep or or had some sort of, you know, uh overarching theme or something. And I can tell you it's definitely not that uh it's there's no depth to the story at all. Um at least not that I can tell. I mean, it seems like it's taking a lot from maybe Japanese mythos and things like that, but and it might be so if I understood that, maybe I could actually see that there was some deeper uh meaning in there. But for the most part, it's it's pretty superficial, uh, just sort of a fun game. Um, I would liken it to like a uh, uh, a Legend of Zelda kind of thing. Like oh, it really? Just has that, yeah, because so it's like, um, you know, different worlds that you kind of go into, uh, different areas that you can't really go, you can't progress until you get certain abilities and things like that. So it has that kind of progression. But the but it's definitely sort of a, uh, a, a 3D uh uh, overhead camera kind of style game, um, and it's a lot of fun. So, and yeah. I, I know you said you hadn't played the the previous versions, but do you have any idea if the HD remake did any kind of control tweaks, or if they actually did any kind of reworking to the game, or if it's just truly a, a, a high def digital remaster? It's interesting you say that because I I don't know to, is the short answer, but I would anticipate they didn't do much. Because there are a few weird quirks with it that I feel like would have been eliminated had they done something. So, for example, the camera control uh, is defaulted at, um, at uh, I don't know if it's inverse or if it's not inverse, but it's basically you press down and that moves the camera down, but it actually moves the viewport up. You know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of opposite, which is not, I don't like that. I like when I press up, the viewport actually goes up sort of thing. Um, and it's very difficult to kind of find out how to change that. I remember trying to find it and not being able to find it. And then once I found it, I changed it, but it, the change didn't stick. And I thought it was just a bug in the system. So I just dealt with it for the first few hours. And then finally I kind of, it, it worked. So there's some things like that, that, that feel clunky that I feel like probably would have been eliminated. Um, there's also no quit to main menu button. So when you're done playing the game, uh, you kind of just have to turn the system off. Like that's how you in the game kind of thing. So it's kind of weird. Yeah, there's some weird quirks there, which I, again, I feel like should have been eliminated, but weren't. Uh, So that tells me that it's probably just an HD update. And it looks like it's just a, it's a $20 retail game, which is, Mm -hmm. I like that for the HD remakes. I'm sick of HD remakes coming out and wanting 
close to full price or you know maybe even the 40 50 dollar range is pushing it a bit much for a game that's been you know, now on its third generation of consoles so 20 feels about right for something like that yeah and uh, and interestingly enough too like uh, i know we'll get to pickups and i didn't actually put this in my pickup because i didn't want to be berated by you for buying a game uh but i did uh <laughs> end up buying uh, a way out uh which was a game i wasn't really interested in at all but a friend of mine, uh, we kind of looked at it. We're like, you know, maybe that would be kind of fun for an afternoon. And it's only a $30 game. And so I bring it up because I, I do like the idea that that games are priced according to uh, not only that they've, that they've existed previously, so an HD or something like that, but in the case of A Way Out, I think that the publisher knows that there, there's a there's a gimmick associated with the game. There's a primary gimmick. The, the user base isn't going to be that big because it forces two-player. Um, so they kind of price it accordingly. They know that it's not going to be this full encompassing experience. It's going to be sort of a smaller experience. And I appreciate that. So how, how was a way out? Have you, you played I not it played it yet? Oh, okay. No, not yet. Uh, I just picked it up yesterday. I might try to get that played today. Um, so I'll be able to follow up, but, um, I, I, like I said, I had no interest in it at all just because I'm not a multiplayer gamer at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just, this just. Being $30, I think, is probably ultimately what made me think, yeah, I might as well. You know, there's yeah. a, that's big difference between 30 and 50 So Yeah, well, and 30 bucks, you think, for for having a buddy over for a day and, you know, ordering some pizza or whatever, that's that's pretty good price for a day's worth of entertainment. Yeah, absolutely. For two people, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what, uh, what games <laughs> have you picked up? I kind of... Uh, jumped the gun there a little bit, but what have you picked up? Well, the the most the thing I'm most excited about picking up, and this will actually go on my what I'm going to be diving into next for my playlist is Nino Kuni 2, um, the the Japanese role playing game sequel. The first one I played uh, a ton of on PlayStation 3. It was probably my favorite role playing game of the generation. Gorgeous artwork and can't wait to dive into the sequel so i picked up picked there's like three different versions of it there's the collector's edition the big box one there's a sort of middle tier edition and then uh just a standard edition so i picked up the middle tier one to be my play copy and then the big collector's edition to sit on my shelf and collect dust (laughs) (laughs) as as i want to do (laughs) <laughs> Other than Nino Kuni, I picked up the Bayonetta Special Edition for the Switch. I imported the European version, which I'm kind of bummed about because the Japanese version actually includes physical versions of both Bayonetta 1 and 2, whereas the North American and the European versions only include a physical copy of Bayonetta 2 and a digital download code for Bayonetta 1. Um, but the Japanese version sold out immediately and pre-order when I wasn't paying attention and uh, have skyrocketed in price. So mm. I think I'll skip that, especially since I've got Bayonetta 1 on Wii U and PlayStation 3, I think. Yeah. But it's cool to have the, the steel book and all of the goodies that came with it. Uh, and then I picked up a game that you might be interested in. It's a kind of a mystery adventure game that I think might be up your alley. Uh, it's called The Raven Remastered. Hmm. It's by THQ. Hmm. Already I'm interested. It's a, a remaster of, I think, an old PC adventure game, if I recall correctly. It takes place in, like, 1960s London, uh, and you're you're investigating the heist of a ruby that was stolen from the British Museum. 
Um, so it's got a little bit of Indiana Jones, a little bit of uh, Hercule Poirot. Just kind of an interesting game. I'm looking forward to diving hmm. into that one. That does look interesting. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, that's uh, anytime you get that creepy plague mask on a character, yep. I'm all about that. So, yep. Very cool. Yeah. But that's really that's really about it. Um, have it's been kind of slow for me the last uh, last couple of weeks. Like I said, I've been working a lot. Um, just been a lot of other stuff on the on the radar here. So pretty light in pickups. But I'm focusing more on some of the older stuff. I just ordered a bunch of filler for uh, some older retro consoles you know i've been in in heavy on the like generation two stuff and uh, got a bunch more of that stuff on the way and got a hookup who's looking to liquidate some of his collection that uh, i might be buying a hefty load from in the future too so (laughs) might have might have something more to discuss next episode on that nice yeah so uh the the only other pickup I had, and I'll mention it really quickly, and then we'll move into um, what may be a kind of new recurring segment. We'll see how you guys like it. Uh, but the last thing I want to mention, and the reason why I, I insist on mentioning it, um, so first of all, I I traded at GameStop one to switch for Yakuza Kiwami. Um, the reason why I insist on on bringing this up is because I think it's important to 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 try to recognize how uh, dumb uh, GameStop is for thinking that that was a good trade on their end. Um, I can't, I can't imagine like they, so GameStop has a, uh, right now they had a thing where certain games, certain Nintendo Switch games would be, uh, would have an additional $10 trading credit and one, two switch for some reason was on that list. So I think that either speaks to the fact that most people who buy games don't realize how terrible of a game that is. And they're really just looking for something to play on their switch with their family or something like that. Um, but I took advantage of that dumbness and uh, traded that in, got $20 credit, and then immediately purchased Yakuza Kiwami uh, for $20, uh, which I've never played any of the Yakuza games. Um, this one, I believe, is a remake of the first one, if I'm, if I'm correct. So I'm, chronologically, I'm, I'm, I'm on the right path. Um, but the more I hear with the new one coming out, I think there's a new one coming out, right? Or a new one that just came out or something? Yeah, there's a new one coming out this year. So I think that's why I've been hearing a lot about it and seeing a lot more footage about it and hearing people talk about it. So uh, it's definitely got me interested. I've, like I said, I've never played it. So this may be one of my next games uh, to play, maybe after Okami HD. Very cool. Yeah. Good trade. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> <laughs> so this other segment that we want to talk about, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, collecting tools of the trade. I'm going to hand this over to you. Obviously, you're the collector um, to maybe talk through some some tips and tricks and things like that, that people who are listening to this, uh, collectors who are listening to this may benefit from. Yeah. So I think, you know, obviously I've been collecting for a long time and a lot of the tools and items that I use have been collated from years of internet searches, years of talking to other collectors, uh, years of owning my own game store where I used a lot of these uh, things because our game stores really focused more, catered more toward the collectors than the the game stops. It was a way for us to differentiate ourselves in that market. So I think uh, some of the tips, you know, this one we're going to start off with, I, we're going to dole them out over the episodes. If you guys like these uh, sections, let us know. We'll keep doing them. Uh, but the first one that I want to talk about is just sticker removal. Everybody hates having all of those ridiculous GameStop stickers stuck all over their cases, retail stickers stuck on their boxes. And I noticed now that there is actually a bit of a revival in people who are keeping that stuff on. 
Uh, I know I listen to and and follow Johnny Ayuchi on on Instagram, and he hosts a great collector podcast called Collector's Quest. Um, and he's actually of the mindset that he kind of likes leaving stickers on uh, because it tells a, a history of it. And I'm sort of getting to that stage where I think it it does provide a an interesting story to go with the game, but. I'm still too anal retentive about condition and everything <laughs> to actually go full in on that. So I'm still s- removing stickers, removing price tags. And so I, there's three primary tools that I use to do that. One that I've been using for a decades, literally, is Gugon. I know Goog- a lot of people love and hate Gugon. The positives are it it works really well if you have a sticker on plastic. So if you have like a, a DS case or a DVD case, Blu-ray case, that kind of thing that's got the sticker on the, the plastic outer seal works really well for that. Um, it is sort of greasy. So it does, if you don't clean it off really well, it does leave a, an oily residue. But the best way to use Gugon is to take the cover art out of the game case and then drip Gugon on the sticker itself so that it's completely covered in the, and completely saturated on the sticker and leave it sit there for about five minutes and that'll allow the Gugon to actually dissolve the adhesive and you should be able after about five minutes to come back and just peel the sticker right off um, and not have any real sticker residue left on it Um, obviously the age of the sticker you may need one or more passes um, but it's fantastic for that and then to clean it off i usually use like uh, a little bit of of, a rag with a little bit of of rubbing alcohol um, and that tends to just clean that that um, greasy goo off of the the goo gone residue off of the case and you know rather than your case smelling like uh used um goodwill store or whatever it'll actually (laughs) smell like uh, citrus which is kind of nice as long as you don't whiff too much of it (laughs) then then you start seeing spots and then things then you don't need the game that's that's game enough yeah that's good time it's like living in in okami (laughs) nice um did you so one of the things you mentioned there that me as a non-collector probably wouldn't have really thought about, so this might be just common knowledge to collectors, is simply removing the insert before you actually try to remove the goo. Like, that's it's obvious in hindsight. Of course, you you want to remove the insert because you could potentially get the goo gone on that and ruin it. But for some reason, I probably just would not have thought of doing that. So uh, you, you've enlightened one person at least. And there's actually two reasons. That is, that's the primary reason is because as you leave the Gugon sit, it will seep into and underneath the the flap, the, the, the sleeve flap. But the other reason is if you actually have to do any, um, any like fingernail peeling or anything of the sticker, you'll actually indent the the cover art because the cover the cases below them in most cases aren't aren't completely solid especially on like ps2 case and stuff there's the there's the empty space where the clip for the instruction manual is and so as you push down on the the case the the sleeve trying to clean it you'll actually push the cover art through that hole and it'll leave a a crease and an indent on the cover art so it's twofold there Hmm. is there a certain amount of zen pleasure that you would get from just the act of removing the stickers, you know, it seems like it would be a chore, but at the same time, it also seems like it could be something that's just appealing and sort of Zen-like. It is. I really enjoy the restoration side of it. I think that's part of, 
part of having worked in in used game stores and my family is I've had family members that ran antique stores and do restoration on other things that are not video game related. And I just find it kind of cathartic and kind of um, pleasing to restore something to its original condition and bring out the beauty. Um, a lot of things that I buy either at Goodwill or on eBay are just grimy as heck, but with a little <laughs> TLC and a little restoration can come out looking really, really nice. So Gugon is, I would not recommend Gugon for use on any kind of cardboard box though, because it will discolor cardboard. So for cardboard, stickers on cardboard, if you're talking Nintendo 64 games, um, Nintendo games, Super Nintendo games, that kind of thing, uh, I use solvent called Bestine. That's B-E-S-T-I-N-E. And it's actually a rubber cement solvent. And it's primarily alcohol, um, I believe. But it's got some other stuff in it as well. And it basically, you, you use it the exact same way as Gugon, except it evaporates ex- extremely quickly. So you douse the, the sticker in Bestine. Um, it will not discolor your case. It will not ripple your, your cardboard. Um, it actually evaporates before it can seep into the, car- the underlying cardboard itself. But it does a really great job of, of detaching the, the adhesive from the underlying cardboard and allowing you to just you know, basically pull the sticker right off without damaging the cardboard box surface or anything like that. Definitely one of the better finds that I've uncovered over the last, this is relatively recent. I've only been using Bestine for probably the last five years or so. And is, is that its primary purpose to remove goo from cardboard or is it one of those repurposed kind of tricks? Yeah, it's a repurposed trick. It's actually a rubber cement solvent. So it's used in like hobbyist crafts and things like that to to kill a rubber cement attachment and completely it basically just gets rid of rubber cement and that's essentially the same fe- function that it's doing here with sticker removal is it's it's killing the adhesive. Hmm, yeah, nice. yeah, and I haven't heard too many people talk about that one. So uh, a lot of people use alcohol. This works way, way, way better than just pure alcohol. I've used it on a ton of things. I've gone through multiple, you know, thirty-two ounce containers of it, um, and I've never destroyed anything. So um, definitely check that out. Unlike alcohol, which if you go through multiple 32-ounce containers, you tend to destroy lots of things. Oh. Uh, that's what I do anyway. So much fun. <laughs> <laughs> the last tool that I use for sticker removal that uh, we'll touch on here in this Tools of the Trade segment is they're called Scotty Peelers. And what a Scotty Peeler is, is it's basically just a plastic spatula almost with a a edge on it that you can use to get underneath the sticker when you're peeling it off and i use this with on plastic cases with gugoin and i use it on cardboard cases with bestine and it in it instead of using your fingernail to try and get underneath the sticker to peel it up use this and it won't you'll run much lower risk of leaving fingerprint indents on your on your cardboard box face or, uh, you know, tearing the the actual sleeve for the, the plastic case, if it's a, a, a plastic case. Um, it's basically just a, a flat, you can think of it almost like a putty knife, um, but it's completely plastic. And, and 
I go through them quite a bit because as the edge on it dulls, they become less and less useful. But you can buy like packs of five of them for like $3 on Amazon. And they're fantastic. And they save your fingernails uh, a ton. You don't get gunk under your fingernails from peeling off stickers, which is a side benefit. Yeah, you, you basically make that money back and not having to pay for manicures. Exactly. And boy, yeah. my manicure budget is <laughs> off the hook. <laughs> I think we need a picture of your lovely fingernails in the <laughs> show notes. <laughs> uh, we, we definitely don't need that. <laughs> but nice. those are my, my tools of the trade for sticker removal, and we'll go into different topics uh, in, in future episodes. Uh, I th- you know, if this is a recurring episode or a recurring topic that people get some enjoyment out of, let us know what you think and uh, reach out on Twitter if you like it or drop us a line at uh, Cartridge Club and let us know your thoughts on should this this segment continue. Nice. Yeah. All right. So let's move into our thank you, Scott, by the way, for that. I learned something. Um Let's go into our topics today. We only have a couple topics, but I think they're going to be topics that uh, we can get a lot of mileage out of. Um, the first being that the Internet Archive, archive.org, a site I love, uh, has now has a section now, uh, a user has been uploading LCD handheld games uh, for streaming online, for you actually play these online now. Um, and so it's, it's a collection called the Handheld History Collection at the Internet Archive. And right now it has about 60 emulated versions of retro handheld games. Uh, These are sort of the Tiger Electronics games that you may remember from childhood if you're as old as myself and Scott. Um, Games like Mortal Kombat and Burger Time, and um, it doesn't have the TMNT Konami games, unfortunately, at least not yet, I didn't see. Uh, Those are games that I definitely had when I was a kid. So it's a really cool concept, a really cool idea, something that I don't think, correct me if I'm wrong, Scott, I don't really think that it's existed anywhere, the ability to play these types of games online. No, not that I've ever seen. I think it's it's just because of the the method of having to dump them. It's not just a ROM that you can actually take and and easily just plug into a a ROM dumper and and have the software. There's actually the the LCD screens on all of these things are actually physical components and and the article goes into actually the way it works, which I found fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I was sort of knew this in the background, but to see it actually stripped out and and to show you what the LCD screen looks like with all of its components is was pretty great. I mean the the for those that don't know what the LCD screen that's layered in on there, it actually has. Um, non-overlapping images of every single image that can possibly appear on the screen. And so then each of those images is individually activated or deactivated by the by the code of the game based on what's going on on the screen. Yeah, there's a really cool, uh, in the article that we'll link to in the show notes um, at theverge.com, uh, there's a really cool slider uh, about halfway down the article that you can actually use to see what, that overlap kind of looks like uh, or what the over what the LCD screen kind of looks like you can kind of move the image back and forth mm-hmm. and everything and it's it's a really cool art form uh, I think trying to get all of those images to be crammed into such a small space uh, with no overlap at all in fact I would love to if it was possible get a high-res version of some of these screens and print those out and hang those up as posters because they're just fascinating. You can kind of stare at them for a while and see 
all of the various little ways that these designers cramped so much information into such a small amount of space. It would be really interesting to talk to, you know, one, some of the designers of these just to just to hear about the thought process and the intricacies that go into laying this thing out because I mean you have to have your entire storyboard figured out, you have to have your entire gameplay mechanic figured out. And then you have to make sure that that's actually viable with the screen space that you have without um, needing one asset in a different part of the screen because an asset can only be where it is on your LCD overlay. Um, yeah, like uh, the the image that you're referencing is of the Nightmare Before Christmas, and you know it's not your typical kind of uh, one-on-one fighter like uh, Street Fighter might be, and so forth, which. Um, would be just interesting to hear the the thought behind how that process is done. Yeah, and it's it's kind of it lets you kind of get a little window into why these games were pretty terrible. And I think we can be honest with ourselves and say that these handheld LCD games, even as children, we recognize that they weren't very good. One of the big problems with them is that because images can't overlap uh, just by nature of the of the hardware itself. Um, animation cycles are very, very tough to, uh, they're, they're very tough to interpret. Um, so you might have a character that is supposed to be running, but the animation cycles, the frames essentially are so small. Uh, there's so few frames associated with animation and the joints somewhat disparate that it's very difficult to even see it as running. It, it, it might just be a character that has legs that appear behind them and then legs that appear in front of them mm-hmm. and that just repeats and it just it doesn't look good it's very difficult and so one of the big problems i had as a kid was things like hit detection really don't exist uh with lcd screens so when there's projectiles being fired you don't know if it's actually hitting you or not because it can't actually collide with you physically it's not able to it's not allowed to actually collide with you and so those kind of action platformer kind of games which seem to dominate the handhelds was always seemed to me such a strange uh, such a strange uh, uh, choice, you know. It seems like there's uh, like puzzle games might make more more sense as an LCD uh, handheld game, um, but you know, I, I it's wonder. Also- if, I wonder if that's just a product of the time period that these came out in. You know, you look back at like th- these were pretty coterminous with like the Nintendo, um, you know, the the NES, and you look at the NES library, and it is by and large action platform run and run and gun type things and so you've got games like double dragon and golden axe and altered beast and uh you know a lot of the you know sonic the hedgehog and things like that gauntlet which were um i i, I agree that i think it, it's tech that could have been used better in a different manner like a couple of the ones that i had that were my favorites were actually baseball and football and I was a huge baseball and football fan as a kid, so I played the living crap out of these. And baseball was actually not awful. I mean, it's by no means great, but uh, it definitely was serviceable as a as an LCD game because it's pretty simplistic, uh, it, and it kind of t- served itself well to that medium. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and to further your point, uh, product of the time, but also we have to keep in mind that these were primarily tie-ins they were primarily used to they they were benefiting off of the notoriety of other games there i don't know that there were too many i i doubt anyway that there were too many of these handheld that sold on their own merits Mm -hmm. Uh, most of them were like oh that's double dragon i don't have an nes system let me get this instead 
and then you're disappointed as a child. But yeah. that's kind of how it worked. <laughs> we just we didn't have anything else, you know. Before I had a Game Boy as a child, I had a few of these, and that's just what you had, and you and you you used it to pass a few, uh, pass some time in the in a car ride or something yep. like that. But yeah, we, we used we my sister and I used these in in the car all the time. We would take a lot of road trips as a family because both of my parents were teachers. So we had summers off and we would go on you know, summer road trips and uh, see the United States. And there's no better way to shut the two of us up and keep us from fighting than to throw a little handheld in our hand. And it's better than giving us whiskey, I guess. <laughs> uh, possibly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who knows? That could have been fun too. My, my actual first gaming handheld, I... I may be wrong. I may be think I may be missing something, but I think the first handheld that I actually owned was the PSP. I never bought a Game Boy of my own. I never bought a Game Boy Advance. And I don't remember if my DS Lite or my PSP came first, but one of those two was my first actual handheld system, not counting the Sega Nomad because that was just a Genesis. But so I most of my my portable gaming, which may speak to why I don't really care for portable gaming, was <laughs> done on on these you know Tiger LCD handhelds or things like the Speak and Spell or the Speak and Math or whatever the hell that thing was called, and which I see they also have now on the the archive.org. They've got in the handheld history they do have the Speak and Spell, and they've got like Tamagotchis and Simon. You ever mm. play Simon as a kid? Oh yeah, for about uh, five minutes. Yeah, <laughs> until it got <laughs> way too too much memory going on. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah, they have some of the Konami. The Konami shaped ones were always fun. Uh, I always they were just massive uh, compared to the Tiger Electronics mm-hmm. ones, but they had these really tall, almost like uh, uh, almost rectangular, tall kind of shapes. Um, as a kid with small hands, they sort of dominated my entire hand. But uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm just scrolling through these. These are. I'm gonna spend some more time in this offline. To to, there's just a lot of stuff here that I could look back wistfully, and it, you kind of are reminded how far we've come. Yeah, that's we really good, have. It's good re- uh, recognition. So speaking of um, how far we come, uh, so I am eight bit uh, is <laughs> is releasing. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, everyone. Now that's will... a transition, folks. <laughs> Yeah, you guys just wait for it, listeners. You'll know why we're laughing, uh, mainly because we're immature uh, <laughs> yeah. boys. But uh, so mm-hmm. I am Eight Bit, a a company that I really like. I really enjoy. They release a lot of uh, you know uh, kind of limited edition uh, games. Sometimes not too many games, but I believe uh, What Remains of Edith Finch, the physical edition, came from them. Uh, Hyperlight Drifter, the physical PS4 edition, came from them. So they also do a lot of vinyl uh, game soundtracks and things like that. So they do a lot of game merchandise that you can't necessarily buy off the shelf. Uh, and that's important context because in this story, they are also uh, creating or distributing a a limited, I think limited, but it's up for pre-order right now, version of the game Inside, uh, a game by Playdead uh, that is fantastic. But the what, what makes this an interesting story is a couple of things. One, the price of this pre-order is $375, and there is no... Uh, direct uh, there's no uh, there's no they they have not been specific about what this pre-order includes they have said that it will include a disc version of inside which for, for on its own is important because right now inside doesn't exist as a standalone PlayStation 4 
game. Um, you can currently buy it as a combo with the game Limbo, uh, which is also a fantastic game. And arguably buying a combo would be greater than buying a single game anyway. So it's kind of a step back in that area. But here you but, get half the number of games for this felt price of $375, Caleb. <laughs> You're right. I didn't, I didn't think about it. Thank you. Uh, so that that's kind of interesting in that is that it does include the game, but and they're not telling you, they, they're an important thing, they're not telling you what's in it. So you have to kind of go with clues. Um, one of the big clues that people have really jumped onto is that this uh, pre-order, this edition is in partnership with a company called Real Doll. And for those who don't know, congratulations. Uh, for those who do know what Real Doll is, uh, go wash your hands before you keep listening to this podcast, please. <laughs> um, it's a company that has uh, made a name for themselves by creating uh, real to life, true to life kind of sex dolls. Uh, apparently, this company is one that they they do this better than any other company out there. Um, is kind of how they sell themselves, and so. That kind of gets people's mind wandering. Why would this uh, this company that makes real life sex dolls be at all involved with creating a limited version of the game inside? Um, so maybe we can talk about that a little bit. Maybe room uh, to try to f- figure out what we think is going on here, uh, and possibly uh, <laughs> try to figure out how many copies of, of that you're going to buy, Scott. Um, because I anticipate you're going to buy many copies, right? Well, there's a limit of two per customer. So I hmm. guess they, they, is it the, because they just don't want you to go from menage a trois to full on like <laughs> gang play? Is that what's, uh, no, is, I think it's, is I am eight bit really prejudiced against the, uh, the, the greater, um, I, I can't even, I'm not, I can't even go down this, road, this line of, uh, I think it's you know I think I have to you know you're you're looking at the the two as a limit, I'm looking at the two as a gift because they recognize that collectors are going to need to have at least two copies, one to keep sealed on the shelf, and the other to fuck the shit out of. Mm, well, yeah, so, that makes sense. That does make <laughs> sense. And I mean, I have to think that it, that this is just going to lead into the new real doll anime line. Um, you know, they, they really just to get their, their foot in the door, so to speak, or their, their, uh, keep going. <laughs> they're not foot into they're the not door. foot into the door. Yeah. With the, the, I gotta think there's a lot of overlap between the, the, the real doll marketplace and the like basement gamer marketplace. Um, so I think this could be, there could be some real synergies here. Um, yeah, I'm wondering what kind of product it'll be for, for $375. It can't be one of their dolls. I, so I waited until right now when I'm at home to, to (laughs) Google this and look up the website, because when Caleb sent me this article, I was at work and I saw a real doll and I almost typed it in and I thought, you know what? I probably shouldn't do this at work because there's just a (laughs) chance that, uh, that this is not work friendly. And boy, was I right. Um, so these things the like the actual dolls cost like $6,000. So unless they're giving us a, just a fantastic deal on Tanya or Kaori, um, my guess is it doesn't have one of the actual dolls. Well, also think about the fact that 
you know, th- there's only a there's only part of the doll that I think people would be interested in anyway. So That's maybe true. they're just selling that part. For it could be. I mean, Real Doll does also. I'm looking at their product catalog right now. They have what looks to be a fantastic product called the Auto Blow Two Plus, <laughs> um, which you know that could fit inside of a, a, a limited edition inside box. And I mean, it kind of goes with the theme. It's uh, inside. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's kind of right in that sweet price point. It's $180, um, and it does come with other options. So you can get add-ons for it, which I'll let your mind wander, um, <laughs> for up to $270. So, And it's the 2+, plus, which shows you that they're constantly innovating. It's right. So, that's right. This is a, this is a forward-looking... If you position it that way, it's forward looking. I mean, you could position it to where it's you know right. not so it's looking right at you, but you know it's it's that would be you. the that would be the auto Superman too. That's <laughs> uh, what that would be. I think it's so joking. Somewhat aside, um, there's got to be a rational reason for this. First of all, they wouldn't put real doll on the actual uh, promotional material if they didn't know that idiots like us were going to have immature conversations about what it could possibly be. But I think in reality, we have to assume that it's not going to be the gross, disgusting, disturbing thing that we probably think it is. Um, however, it is also important to note a couple things. One, the game inside does, while it's not overt with its themes uh, or its intent or its narrative or anything like that, there is, from what I feel anyway, very much a sort of reproduction element to the game. Um, I made a video a while ago called, uh, it, it was part of a series that was short-lived called The One Thing, and it talked about specific elements in games that made them great. So like the one thing that made them great. Um, and in that video, I do talk about for, for in the video for Inside, I do talk about a lot of the allusions to, uh, to birth and to um, reproduction and everything that's in that game. And there's a lot of allusions when you really dig into it. However, I don't think that the, the, those illusions are really where Real Doll is uh, coming into play here, because I think what Real Doll is probably doing, my guess anyway, would be that the collector's edition or this this pre-order edition would include a statue of some sort that is of uh, I'll I'll say spoilers here, but you know if you haven't played Inside, you're stupid anyway, so you deserve to be spoiled. Um, and I know I'm say, saying that to Scott, who probably hasn't played it because it is digital only, <laughs> except for the uh, that's true. I guess the, I do the have two- the the physical combo bundle, but have not played it yet. Well, despite, there... despite you having told me to play it on multiple occasions. <laughs> well, um, I, I say spoiler only because this is. Uh, uh, it doesn't spoil story at all because again, there isn't really a story associated with the game, at least not an overt one. Um, but there's a, toward the end of the game. And really, if you Google inside uh game, you'll probably see this image anyway, but I'm there Googling is inside real doll right now. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Tell me what you find out <laughs> in detail. Uh, the, at, toward the end of the game inside, you start playing as this amorphous blob of limbs. Essentially. You're just this big round uh, thing and the physics of this is what drew a lot of attention. People talked about how amazing it looked. Like it was, you could actually feel the heft and the weight of this giant ball of limbs as you roll around, knocking over things. It's almost sort of a Katamari Damasi, Damasi thing, um, where you just kind of roll over things and things can stick to you a little bit. But it was very, the physics of it were just mesmerizing. Um, and I think that's probably where the tie-in comes from. I anticipate this pre-order will have a statue of some sort of this blob. And knowing that Real Doll 
specializes in, you know, realistic skin and sort of realistic weight and stuff like that. Um, that's probably what it's what you're getting is this giant statue blob thing. Um, that makes the most sense, but at the same time, it also begs the question: like, who would want a three hundred and seventy-five dollar statue of this in their house? I love the game inside. I don't want a three foot tall blob of flesh uh, in my living room. Um, I already have kids, and that's close enough. But I ba take that, kids. <laughs> oh my god. Um, so, uh, so that's probably what I think is probably going to be in it. Um, but again, even if if that is the case, I don't want it anyway. So I don't know if if it's going to be very. Uh, I don't know how many people are actually going to be uh, impressed by what comes out of this this buy. Well, and looking at the the image on the I am eight bit website. Uh, for the item, the it's basically just a a box with a bow on it. But the wrapping paper, I think, now not having yep. played the game, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think the bo- the image that's going kind of walking across the wrapping paper is that blob that you're talking about. Yep, it absolutely is. Yeah. So I think that's probably a a good guess, and really makes me want this much much less. Um, <laughs> So maybe I'll reduce my order from two to one. Um, <laughs> but you can, it's a timed release. You mentioned it is a limited edition, but it's sort of a, a limited edition, like uh, limited run games has done a couple of times where they opened up pre-orders and then they're cutting off pre-orders on June 8th uh, at midnight Pacific. So you can get in there, get your order, spend your 375 bucks anytime between now and June 8th. After that, your chance to get a fuckable amorphous blob is out the window, <laughs> never to come back. Uh, I do love, so this kind of thing, as ridiculous as it is, it does endear me a little bit to the company even more than I already was. Like, I love IM8Bit. Most of their products I don't, I don't care about. I don't, I'm not a vinyl collector and they do a lot of vinyls. But the games that they released have been really strong games, um, and so I, I, I really respect what these do, what they're doing. This sort of endears me to them even more because I think they realize how absurd this is. They they know it's a lot of money, three hundred seventy five, and they're going out of their way to advertise that they are not telling you what's in it. Um, over and over again on their sales page, even I mean they're saying you know we are we will not tell you what's in it. Maybe it's what you're thinking, maybe not. Um, and then if you look at the the bulleted list of, of features, uh, the first bullet is limited time release. The second bullet is definitely includes colon inside PS4 game disc. The next bullet is also includes colon other stuff. And that's it. It doesn't even tell you anything <laughs> else. So they're they're very brash in how much they're telling you. It's they, They're not going to tell you what's in it. I don't know. There's something about that that endears me to it. Uh, I will not spend $375 on this at all. There'll be plenty of unboxing videos online, I'm sure. Um, and that'll be enough for to appease my curiosity. They did get, what, 5,500 people to buy their stupid Street Fighter II re- oh, yeah. flammable replay cart. So, uh, you know, maybe maybe this will sell really well. Who knows? I, it would be interesting. I, I kind of hope that once they are closed up on pre-orders that they release the the number that were ordered because that's going to be fascinating. Yeah. And you're in, you just reminded me, yeah, they did do the street fighter two release, which uh, that kind of D endears me to them. I, I forgot it was them that did that. Cause I thought that was a pretty stupid thing, but yeah. you know, people bought it. What are you going to do? Yeah. 
Yeah, I do enjoy that the market for them on the secondary market has crashed and they're selling for like 75 bucks and where they originally cost a hundred. <laughs> oh, plus, plus your $25 shipping. Yep. Yep. That makes me smile quite a bit. Ah, <laughs> uh, me too. So anything else uh, about this wonderful, wonderful product? No, uh, I think we we've on? beat it really hard. <laughs> 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 All right. Thank you. On to the main event then. Uh, I love this. Uh, so the main event, we're going to be talking about uh, the video, the World Video Game Hall of Fame, uh, because it's just announced that they have revealed their 12 finalists uh, for the new players, or they've revealed the 12 finalists for this year, and there's a public vote um, to vote these finalists into the uh, World Video Game Hall of Fame. Um, I think it's probably important to talk a little bit about what the World Video Game Hall of Fame is because when I first learned about this uh, a couple of years ago or whenever it kind of started getting a lot of notoriety, my first thought was, hey, you know, is this a physical place? How how correlative is this to like the Baseball Hall of Fame, meaning that there's a certain process for being inducted and there's a certain gravitas associated with being inducted? Um, and from what I can tell, that it's definitely being treated seriously. I mean, this is a serious thing. It's actually um, a a uh, product of the strong National Museum of Play, which isn't too far from your neck of the woods, I don't think. No. Nope. Uh, um, so it's, it's official in that sense that it does have this official museum backing. Um, it doesn't, I don't think, have the gravitas of a, of a baseball hall of fame or something like that, probably because it's still pretty new. And I think there's still a general sense of, of the public that video games don't necessarily deserve this sort of gravitas. So um, I think it's still fighting for notoriety, but to gamers like us, I think it's safe to say that it's a really, really cool idea. We love seeing games get this attention. And so far, the consensus on on the inductees so far in the Hall of Fame, um, which they have a total of, uh, I don't know, they have about, uh, I'm just kind of scrolling through the- 16. The 16 so far. So those games- um, the, the consensus on those games is that they, they deserve to be there. There's games like Donkey Kong, Doom, The First Legend of Zelda, Super Mario Brothers, a lot of the heavy hitters that you would expect. And then also a lot of the games that maybe retro fans may not have expected, games like The Sims and World of Warcraft. You know, you think of those and you think, well, those don't have the history, really, that some of these other games do. Why are they inducted? But when you really peel back the layers, you realize they did some really big things for video games, mm-hmm. and it should matter that they only did them fairly recently. So yeah, I mean, all, I think that's, that's huge. The, the selection that's represented here in their initial 16 is they're all landmark games. They may not all be landmark in the fact in the way Pong is landmark, which is, is one of the 16, but they were, I mean... It's hard to argue that World of Warcraft did not have a measurable impact in the gaming world. Um, it's hard to argue that The Sims was not revolutionary for its time. Uh, the Oregon Trail, I, that was one of my very first gaming experiences, and, and I know a lot of people of my generation who grew up playing computer games and in computer labs at school probably played a ton of Oregon Trail. Um, so I, I think it's a good cross-section of games that were truly um, impactful to the industry at large and not just a swath of good games. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So the the games that are now on the list, uh, or I should say the games that are the finalists, uh, which will be um, the inductees of these, fi- the inductees will be announced on May 3rd, but the finalists uh, are also great games in and of themselves or, or valid picks in and of themselves. And maybe what I can do, maybe what we can do actually is 
let's talk a little bit about uh, our picks for the games rather than kind of go through the list of all the games that are up for uh, that are finalists. We can kind of go through the games that we pick as maybe being there because those are going to take up half of them anyway. <laughs> um, and then before we do that, just to give people reference, let's just go through and give a quick bite on each of the 16 that are in. Mm-hmm. And that'll frame because I think a lot of the discussion on what we think about the 2018 potential inductees are, are framed by what's already in the in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, good point. Good point. So just going in the order that they're listed on the website, which I think is looks like alphabetic. Um, the first game is Donkey Kong, the original, uh, the arcade game. Um, I mean, I think it's it's pretty obvious that this one is is a classic. It was really uh, introduction of Mario and Peach and Donkey Kong, three iconic um, characters to really to the West. Um, and I think it's an obvious choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Doom is the next one. Um, Doom is, uh, it, it popularized the first, it came out in 2000, or, I'm sorry, 1993. Uh, I have the Doom 2016 in my head because that's also an amazing game. Uh, so the original Doom came out in 1993. It popularized the first-person shooter genre. Um, games like Half-Life and Halo and things like that kind of followed in the footsteps of Doom in a lot of ways. Uh, I think what it makes sense that it's here, not just because it, it popularized the first person genre, but it also, um, introduced a lot of mechanics and a lot of aspects of game design that are still being used today. Um, it also, uh, I mean, I'll just leave it at that. I mean, it, it has a legacy there of, of kind of creating a lot of the conventions that we associate with first person shooters right now. And I think it also really was the first time, at least that I can recall, that it produced rock star developers. You know, John Carmack and John Romero of ID were sort of the the first mega personalities in in the game development scene. Mm-hmm. So the Good next point. the next game on the list is Grand Theft Auto Three. Uh, which was the first game in the Grand Theft Auto series to be a real modern Grand Theft Auto game. Grand Theft Auto and Grand Theft Auto 2 were both more top-down, kind of um, almost uh, like arcade racer, combat racers. And so this was the first sandbox Grand Theft Auto game. And although it wasn't the first sandbox game, it really is the first one that uh, hit the speed on on making the sandbox genre blow up, um, and it, it's the the only game of that ilk that is is nominated. And I think you go back and forth on whether GTA three or GTA four is best represented, but I think where they where they had a question in terms of series, they seem to err on the side of whatever the first iteration of that series is. And here I would really classify GTA one and two as different games entirely agreed 100 percent uh halo combat evolved uh this uh it's funny i i mentioned doom earlier and then i say that there are other that, that games like halo and stuff kind of uh further explored those conventions created by doom but halo combat evolved does is in the hall of fame on its own right as well not only did it popularize further popularize the first person shooter games but it changed the expectate players expectations for the genre so um 
there there was story elements, compelling characters, uh, the the game universe. These were all things that weren't really thought of as necessary for a first-person shooter. Uh, first-person shooters were heavy on the shooter, and that's kind of what they were, and they didn't really need, they didn't really uh, introduce story or anything like that. But Halo was one of the first games that really did that. Halo was also a game that popularized the uh, massive first-person shooter on consoles. Um, there were obvious console first-person shooters before this, but this is one that showed that consoles could, uh, could, could, develop a first-person shooter experience in ways that that even exceed pc to some degree not only did it popularize the genre but it redefined what the earlier console control was in a shooting game you know you go back and go back and play halo and the gap between halo's gameplay and gameplay today is not all that large in a grand sense of things but if you go back and play goldeneye for example on n64 which was really the prior popular console shooter it's it it's almost difficult to play now because of the the control conventions are just not quote unquote modern. Mm-hmm. Next up is Legend of Zelda, the original. Uh, I, I don't think there's a whole lot to say here. Zelda is a a landmark, um, a, an icon. There you go. <laughs> the Oregon Trail, which you mentioned already, uh, also one of my first gaming experiences as well. I remember playing it on the old Apple IIe green screens in my yep. computer lab in seventh grade. Um, so it, it, fantastic game. There's been so many, so many iterations on it. Uh, an edutainment game is, is what it was kind of sold as, but it was, I think one of the first games that really made, that really focused on the attainment part of edutainment. Um, it was a lot of fun and, uh, I don't know that I necessarily learned too much other than how to, uh, time my bullet shots right so that a deer would run into the path of my bullet. Uh, <laughs> that was about it. But there's been plenty of iterations on this. There's a card game now that's terrible, by the way. Uh, there's just, it's, it's, it, ha- it has a legacy there and everyone remembers it fondly. No one is angry. No one has angry experiences of the Oregon Trail. It's a very fondly remembered game. Amen. Next on the list is Pac-Man. What can you say? Pac-Man is, is one of the largest arcade earners ever. And you know, fairly or unfairly gets crapped on for the downfall of the gaming industry with the <laughs> with the Atari collapse, uh, which you know, as if if you've seen the Atari Game Over documentary, that's definitely not the case. But um, loved Pac-Man and Pac-Man. Miss Pac-Man is actually one of the 2018 finalists that we'll get into in a minute. All right. Pokemon Red and Green. I know I've never played a Pokemon game, so I'm not going to try to uh, wax eloquently about the impact this game had. All I know is that every single person in the world has heard of it, and it is a massive, massive, massive thing. It's a system seller. It's huge in every sense of the word. So I'm just going to leave it at that. If you have anything to say about Pokemon, please do. Uh, I have also never played a Pokemon <laughs> game. So, what kind yeah. of hosts are we? I know we're terrible. <laughs> Clearly, we're far too old to be doing this. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so we'll have a lot to say on Pong. I'm guessing. Yeah. Next up is Pong, the uh, the great digital ping pong game. One of the the first games that basically every first generation game console was a Pong clone, uh, and it spawned home gaming and released. Back in 1972 by Atari's Nolan Bushnell. Everybody knows it. Everybody can see it. You can close your eyes and see the screen in your head. Uh, You don't need a whole lot of imagination to do that. (laughs) But it it really, it started to get people 
to realize that a television could be interacted with and it wasn't just a it could it didn't have to be passive entertainment all right uh the sims uh the sims is a it, it popularized it well it, it really made ultimate customization of characters and ultimate uh sort of godlike customization of characters really 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 popular um, at least on a, on a, on a, on a individual level. So there were other games, there were other godlike God Sim type games that came before this, but this was the first one that really focused on individual personalities and individual characters and people. Um, and I think that sort of, this is sort of going off script a little bit, but I would imagine that that sort of mailability with players with, with characters set the expectation for a lot of how RPGs operate now. Um, there's just a certain expectation with it being able to customize, radically customize characters that was introduced with the Sims. I think, uh, probably some of the character creations of RPGs, even RPGs where you'd never see their face for some reason, you know, you still, there's still an expectation that you can create your character and customize your character to a pretty in-depth degree. Um, I think that probably has a lot they owe a lot of that to the Sims. Yeah, absolutely. It's the, it was a spinoff of Will Wright's Sim City franchise, which I played a ton of on the Super Nintendo, actually, and then and then on the PC. Um, but I remember when the Sims came out, and it was hugely, hugely innovative. It was hugely hyped. It won Game of the Year awards all over, um, and it was really the first time that you could explore intimate relationships in in a game that was a mainstream game right not like a uh, an rpg or something that was more niche this was sims was marketed to everyone from you know your your sister played it your mom played it it was a massive massive success and uh you know, it's still still going today and 18 years later we have the inside pre-order which allows us to explore games intimately in a different way it's probably because The Sims is legal now. That's <laughs> that's why that's what we have to blame. <laughs> Next up is Sonic the Hedgehog. Sonic really redefined the platformer. The first time I saw Sonic the Hedgehog played at one of my friends' house, who was the first in sort of our town to get a Genesis, and the packing game was Sonic, and we went over there, and obviously being used to all of us playing on the Nintendo. Seeing Sonic with all of the bursting colors and the speed just going a hundred miles an hour, it was revolutionary. And everybody at it was the only thing you needed to convince kids that were, you know, in the kind of 10, 11, 12 to 15 age range that Genesis was for your little brother. And now Sonic and Genesis are here on the scene and that's what you needed. Nice. I did not have a Genesis as a child, so I'm still Team Nintendo, but um, I recognize how awesome blast processing is. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> uh, marketing is great. Uh, Space Invaders. Uh, so Space Invaders, everyone knows Space Invaders. Um, it was released in 1978. A, it, it basically it, it introduced the high score, uh, which is something that uh, just it's strange to think of the high score having not existed at some point. But you can imagine also that what the high score would do in terms of quarter pumping children in arcades probably increased revenues quite a bit there, I would imagine. Um, it also is responsible for selling a lot of Ataris, uh, the Atari 2600. It was it was Atari 2600's most popular game at one point, and uh, it was sort of the killer app for the Atari 2600 um, for, for a short time. Um, so Space Invaders was one of those games that just sort of 
solidified gaming as a viable option um, when a lot of gaming seemed sort of to be faltering. Um, now, of course, then the uh, the uh, the North American market crash or the North American video game crash would happen uh, not too many years later. But at the same time, uh, it was definitely a, a an important point, an important uh, game for its time. Absolutely. And if if the late seventies and early eighties the arcade scene was all about the the shooters like Space Invaders, like Asteroids, things like that, the late eighties or I guess the early nineties was really when that changed over to being all about one on one fighters. And the next game on the list is Street Fighter Two. Um Street Fighter Two essentially spawned the genre. It it was first on the scene, paved the way for Mortal Kombat, and and you know, all of the the ones that we have today with Virtual Fighter, Tekken, Toshinden, which I'm sure there's a huge uh, tournament uh, Toshinden group out there somewhere. <laughs> um, but Street Fighter Two, as much as Sonic was the impetus for me buying a Genesis, Street Fighter Two was absolutely 100% the impetus for me buying a Super Nintendo. It had rocketed up to be my ultimate arcade experience my friends and i would go uh in in junior high to the arcade and and pump quarter after quarter after quarter into street fighter 2 and being able to play that at home was mind-blowing and it irked me to no end that street fighter 2 was a timed exclusive to the super nintendo and the super nintendo's launch was actually delayed so sega beat them to market quite handedly i think it was almost two years but then when they they launched with mario world and street fighter 2 that was that was all i needed to get me on board and we played a ton of street fighter That was one of the first games I had on my Super Nintendo as well. I think a lot of people could probably say that. Um, the uh, which might, it might be a good time too to also mention that um, there is a collection that the the Street Fighter collection is coming out on some platforms here coming up, which will include a huge number of the Street Fighter games, and you'll realize just how many absurd spinoffs there were for that series. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> Super Mario Brothers for the NES is next. Uh, there's really not a whole lot that needs to be said about this game and why it's inducted. Of course it's inducted. Um, one of the things that I will touch on is that this game did a lot of things for game design that weren't done in the past, done previously. Um, and I think one sort of anecdote that could potentially exemplify this, and then I'll leave it at that, um, the Shigeru Miyamoto just had this seemingly intuitive sense of how to make a video game fun um, and how to make, how to, how to help people learn the, the video game conventions. Um, and so if you, if you'll, if you'll picture the level one of Super Mario Brothers, the very beginning of the Super Mario Brothers game, you'll, you'll, you'll picture Mario, you'll picture a blue sky, you'll picture Mario on the screen. And you'll also probably picture Mario kind of to the left of the screen. That tiny little detail He's at the left rather than in the center, rather than at the right. That tiny little detail of him being at the left does so much in terms of affordance, in terms of allowing gamers to kind of understand how to play the game intuitively without needing an overt tutorial. Uh, the the sort of uh, convention in video games is that a lot of video games are focused on the center of the screen. And so players had that uh, that 
that that desire to make sure that things are centered in a screen and so immediately you see mario at the left you start moving the directional pad to the to the right to get him to the center when you do that all of a sudden the actual screen camera viewport itself starts moving as well and then you realize holy crap this is a huge game and i can move all the way to the right uh that's something that really hadn't happened in games before and just that tiny little detail of starting mario at the left of the screen um is it's genius and and that alone almost would be reason enough to keep this in the to put this in the hall of fame but that alone also is what allowed a lot of the other things to happen with mario brothers to make it so great so uh just a, it's it's a, it's still today a master class in game design uh, and it was and it's so old it's it's insane to think just how much of a legacy it has pretty amazing yep Next up on the list is another game that Nintendo popularized, even though it existed for years before that, and that's Tetris. Tetris, I think a lot of people who are our age can think of their experience. It's indelibly linked with their Game Boy experience. Uh, I mentioned earlier that I didn't have a Game Boy, but I did borrow one from a friend. And the entire our family took a, a holiday trip to Florida from Wisconsin, which is like a 20 hour drive or something crazy and this was 1992 i believe or no no it's probably like 1989 i'm guessing and i played tetris literally the entire trip down there and back it's so simple and it's so it's one of those things that's simple to understand and hard to master right that's kind of the the ultimate ultimate compliment that you can give any game and it, it really became a phenomenon and and it's 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 probably the pinnacle of puzzle gaming. I would agree. I would agree. Um, World of Warcraft is the last one on this list before we jump into the uh, the 2018 um, finalists. Uh, world of Warcraft, an open world or uh, MMO RPG. Um, massive multiplayer online role-playing game for those of you who are not in the know <laughs> like I am. Uh, it is a... It, it followed a lot of the conventions that previous MMO RPGs had done, um, battling enemies, completing quests, storylines, all that kind of stuff. But what made this game really popular and different is that it, it was relatively easy for players to complete their tasks, and that made the game good for casual gamers, hardcore gamers, um, all over. There was, before uh, World of Warcraft, there was a, uh, it. I won't say arbitrary gate, but it was difficult for some players to get into the idea of a massive multiplayer online role-playing game because it seemed very uh, intimidating. And World of Warcraft changed that. And today World of Warcraft is giant and huge and still growing um, and definitely put Blizzard on the map, I would say. Yeah, it it definitely made Blizzard a cash cow. I mean, mm -hmm. Blizzard had been a huge hit beforehand with Warcraft and Starcraft and Diablo, but the subscription model was a first for Blizzard. Um, and I mean, I had played MMORPGs. I'd played Ultima Online through my senior year of high school and then my stunted freshman year of college when I got kicked out of school for playing too much Ultima online <laughs> and never got into Ulta or EverQuest played some um, 
Dark Age of Camelot and some other things, Star Wars Galaxies, some things that were sprinkled in throughout there. But I mean, when World of Warcraft came out, it was like every other MMORPG ceased to exist and everybody played it. Um, I was I was running a video game store at the time where we had um, it was a game center. So we had a network of custom computers people could come and rent time on and play. It was like a like a barcade except for computers. Uh, and there was probably a period of two years where at any given time you could find at least a dozen, you know, six, six to a dozen people playing World of Warcraft. Um, it was a monumental achievement in gaming that I doubt will ever be recreated. Uh, it was just sort of a confluence of the internet becoming much more ubiquitous. Um, the colors, the game was accessible. Like you mentioned, it was easy to play, but it was hard to master. Once you scaled up and got into raid groups, it almost became like, uh, you needed to be well oiled, well functioning as a unit, as a team. Um, a lot of people who were raid leaders and guild masters would actually list those things as abilities and, and traits on resumes for real world jobs, because it was like running an organization. It was a pretty amazing, amazing game. I uh, had a lot of fun with it. Spent way, way, way too much time playing it. And it's the reason I will never go back to play another MMORPG. <laughs> it's good you recognize that about yourself. A lot of people wouldn't. Yep. It, uh, it, it sucked up probably three years of my life. Nice. All right. Well, that's the 16 that are currently in the video game hall of fame, the world video game hall of fame. Um, so let's talk then about the finalists for 2018, possibly. Um, and maybe what we can do there is uh, just kind of go through our own picks that I think will provide some insight into what's currently on the list. Um, how does that sound? Sounds good. Cool. All right. Well, I'm going to start with you uh, just because uh, you are more articulate than I, I think, in this uh, this morning. So please. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> Well, the, the first game that I would choose from the list, there's a list of 12 that are nominated in the finalists for induction. The The winners will be announced May 3rd, so coming up here in, in about a month. And the first one that I would choose if I was drafting winners out of this list, and the first one that I would choose would be Final Fantasy VII. Final Fantasy VII, while not my favorite Final Fantasy it was definitely the Final Fantasy game that accelerated role-playing acceptance. I mean, uh, I would argue that Final Fantasy VI is a better game. Uh, it's probably my favorite Final Fantasy game. But the impact on gaming in general that Final Fantasy VII had is palpable. I mean, the game, the game sold over 10 million units. It's the second highest-selling game for the PlayStation 1, which is really amazing to think about you know it, it's a it's definitely a niche game it's turn-based it's very much a japanese role-playing game and to be the tops one of the top two selling games on the platform is astounding especially for a system that sold as many units as the playstation did but even more so than that it is almost single-handedly responsible for giving playstation such a 
huge jump start into the market. I mean, Sony, there were a lot of questions. People forget that when Sony launched, they were launching a as a new entrant into a market that Sega and Sony had dominated for you know, almost a decade. They were coming on the heels of other people who had tried to do the same thing, whether it was 3DO, Atari Jaguar, CDI. There was a whole litany of failed new entrants into the game console market in that era, in that mid-90s kind of um, world where people were jostling for the market and and everybody wanted to be Me Too. Um, And wrestling the Final Fantasy exclusive license away from Nintendo because of Nintendo's adherence to cart man, cart gaming um, and the fact that Nintendo wanted Final Fantasy 7 to be such a huge experience that it would need something like I don't remember what the number is but it was like a hundred carts would be required to be to, to fit Final Fantasy 7 on so by default they almost had to go with Sony and it it really helped jumpstart them I remember it was one of the games that I was looking forward to most when buying my PlayStation on launch day. Ah, that was such a good game. Yes. I, uh, I did not have it, uh, when I was a child, uh, but my, or when I was, I guess it came out probably my freshman year of high school, maybe. Um, but, uh, I did, I had a friend who had it and we, um, missed a little bit of school sometimes playing that game. Let's just say that. (laughs) You would not be alone. (laughs) Um, So my first uh, inductee, I think, is going to be... Um, I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with, um, John Madden football. And I know this is going to sound crazy because I'm not a sports fan. I don't care about sports in real life or in video game format, really. Uh, but I think this was really, really, really important because this was the first sports game that really put strategy into the game, uh, and made it less of an arcade experience and more of a real world simulation experience. Mm -hmm. Um, it was the first sports game to feature weather conditions that actually had an impact on the game, I should say. Um, so, you know, you could play in the sun, you can play in the rain, snow, cold, there could be wind, all this kind of stuff that did actually impact the game. Uh, it also allowed you to choose how long you wanted to play. So you could change the lengths of the quarters. Um, if it was the first game to, uh, to have player fatigue, I I remember. So like you could, you're, you know, the more mistakes or the more, uh, the longer you played, the players would actually start getting fatigued and they would run slower. Um, they might make more mistakes if they were tired. Um, and it, it was also the first to allow you to kind of turn off, uh, injuries. So for there, it's not the first game to have injuries in the game, player injuries, but it was the first one to kind of let you turn them off and you could turn off penalties. So you could also, so you could, you could turn it into a true arcade experience if you wanted to, and just have a crazy amount of fun with your friends being, being just absurd. Um, so, and it's interesting because John Madden is also, he, you know, he's not a, player uh at least at the time that this i don't think he was ever a player was he or was no he, he a, was a he was a coach so he was coach a, that's for right the, for the raiders teams in the the 60s and 70s he was a iconic coach for them yeah and so having a coach or having a non-player's name associated with a sports title was also uh, i don't know if this was the first time it was done but it was also kind of weird honestly if you think about it um so it also i think that gave because John Madden's name was going to be on it he insisted that the game be as true to true to life as possible um and so without I think John Madden being there uh we would not have accelerated that whole gaming strategy or the uh sports game strategy world nearly as fast as as we did 
Yeah, I mean, you saw in in that same kind of era or quickly thereafter, there was also um, Mike Ditka football, who was also a current coach at the time. But I think what what intentionally or not, what Madden, the licensing of Madden's name did is it took a game and allowed the name to be perpetual, right? It, you had games that were on the scene that were always tied to an athlete that would phase out, especially in football careers are so short. So you had like Bo Jackson's football, Joe Montana's football, um, John Elway's quarterback. And those things have a shelf life attached to them just by nature of the fact that you can't keep making Joe Montana's NFL football after Joe Montana's retired. He's not a NFL PA member anymore. He's no longer part of the consciousness of, of the kids that are watching football. So you have to almost rebrand your entire game. They went from John, uh, Sega went from Joe Montana's NFL football to Deion Sanders' NFL football and then started branding it as just NFL football, which is also sort of a, a weak weak license when you don't own the NFL name. So John Madden's football allowed them to attach themselves to a, a name that was sort of iconic and, and timeless. At the time, he was an announcer, and he was announcing all of the major games during the weekend, so he was a name that people were familiar with. And they basically signed him to a perpetual license after the after the game took off. Um, I think it was in 2005, EA signed Madden to a deal to license his name and likeness in perpetuity, so forever, uh, for about 150 million bucks. Not a bad little payday for a a retired uh, NFL coach. (laughs) Man, and considering the popularity of it now, uh, he's probably still thinking, damn, I could have gotten away with a lot more. (laughs) Yeah, right. I think he's probably doing okay, though. Yeah, he's probably all right. (laughs) I like to believe in a world where rich people see a limit to their need for more money. Uh, But at the (laughs) same time, history tells us that's probably not the case. I'm sure he he wants more. (laughs) So my next inductee is Half-Life, created by Valve and Sierra in 1998. It really did spawn a lot of those first person shooters that came after it was it was revolutionary for the physics that were involved in the game it it was basically the the it put valve on the map um and the half-life engine would go on to every major game for the pc that was a first person shooter would either use the half-life engine or the unreal engine it was basically one of two games that was the core for almost every other game on the market at the time. And this was during the explosion of PC first-person shooter games. Not only was it the core that they licensed out for companies to use as their as their game engine, but it also had a huge modding community. And you saw games like Counter-Strike, which was initially a Half-Life mod, um, Gary's mod. There were all sorts of mods that sprung up around Half-Life that just not only influenced the entire era of PC gaming and and I would argue turned console gaming into what it is today. But I think the mod scene also gave uh, a creative outlet and a lot of training to people who would go on to become the game developers of, you know, follow on generations. Absolutely agreed. And I think Half-Life 3 is coming out uh, very soon. 
I hear that's so. that's the word. That's yeah. the word. I think it's uh, you know it's right. It's following on the the timeline of uh, Duke Nukem Forever. I think <laughs> that would imply that it actually is going to be released, though. So <laughs> that's uh, that's that's true. Which I think would make some people very very happy. Uh, but yeah, um, I'm gonna go with um, I'm gonna go with Space War, and this is a game that uh, sorry Space War. There's an exclamation mark. Uh, well done. Th- thank you. This uh, is a game that probably uh, maybe a lot of listeners haven't really heard of, um, but it is arguably the very first video game, uh, at least video game that that a lot of people could kind of play. So I'm not going to get into um, the he said, she said of the first video game releases. Uh, it, then you get into a really crazy kind of kind of uh, area but space war was a game uh that was developed on it was developed back in 1962 and it was uh it set the basis for what would some consider the actual very first video game which i believe uh, was called computer space i think i'm getting those right maybe i got the chronology wrong on that but um computer space was a game that was uh set up in a couple of bars in the local college area and uh, it got really popular and that sort of it, it, that impressed then Nolan Bushnell to basically think of Atari and Pong and all this kind of stuff. And, and even when I talk about Pong being a product of Nolan Bushnell, like that's also controversial because there are, is evidence of Pong actually having appeared much, much, much earlier, um, even so far back as the 1950s. So by me saying that Space War is the first game is also controversial. So there's a lot of controversy there. But. Without that, even with all that controversy, um, the truth is that Space War is an incredibly important game, and it influenced a whole lot of people to create games, and for that reason alone, it needs to be there. Um, It didn't really catch on. I think a lot of people say just because it was almost too complicated. Um, There was – Pong is simple. You look at Pong, you move some paddles, and you know exactly what's happening. Space War was designed by – very smart people to be almost too realistic to some degree. Um, and you kind of ha- – and and only a certain group of people could – even had access to it. Smart people even had access to it. So it was just a very complex game and probably just more than it really needed to be. It didn't really have the fun factor. It had more of the um, – you know, you just had to be a smart person to play it. So uh, that's why it's on uh, my list. Very nice. Going from – your 1962 entry i'm going to fast forward to something much more recent and that's minecraft Uh, minecraft is my next selection from the uh, the list of uh, potential inductees here Uh, it is as of this year it has sold 144 million copies and now i'm not a minecraft player Um, i don't have really any interest in it whatsoever but I, i all i have to do is is look at my nieces and nephews and you know friends kids and things and they all play minecraft every one of them and they all it it introduces them into a creative space that may not have existed for a lot of generations i mean i i think of back when i was growing up playing with with action figures and you know and that was sort of my creative outlet is creating stories and creating creating scenes and things like that with them but here with minecraft you you almost take that to the nth degree and you're learning even more so about spatial relationships and and um, being able to to craft things in a digital environment, and I think that as a learning tool, not only as a game, I think Minecraft is is a pretty phenomenal achievement. I would agree. Not to mention a huge financial success. 
Yeah, uh, didn't the creator of of Minecraft win a a bid for a mansion against? Uh, he won a bid against uh, Jay Z and Beyonce for a mansion. <laughs> so he outbid Jay Z and Beyonce on a mansion. That's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> um, pretty crazy. That is insane. So I'm going to choose. I think I'm going to go with Metroid uh, on the NES. Um, it was a game I owned as a child. I was never good at it. It was incredibly way too difficult for me. Um, but I, I choose it not only because it does have some historical significance, and I think that's probably what's most important here. Uh, actually, I shouldn't say I think. That is definitely what's most important here And the, uh, because the other reason that I bring it up is, is a personal reason, and that's because I just have a closeness to it uh, since childhood. And, I'm, I don't, and I don't think the uh, National Video Game or the, the uh, World... Uh, Video Game Hall of Fame consulted me when they were discussing these, so I don't think my personal involvement has any, or my personal history with the game has any involvement. Uh, God, I can't speak this morning. God, I need more coffee. Um, <laughs> so uh, why Metroid? Um, so I grew up when I had um, uh, my, the first, when I got a Nintendo, I, I got it was gifted to me by my father, and at the time, uh, my father and mother had been divorced for many years, and I didn't really talk with him much or hear from him much so when this package kind of showed up it was nintendo and metroid um it sort of solid it represented a a an, an increasingly uh tenuous bond between my father and i and so it has some nostalgic purposes there um and i even wrote an essay i rec- i i would of course recommend everyone go read it but i wrote an essay about this um you can find it on my site you can find it on amazon um it's called uh it's called shoot jump run born into metroid and cocaine and uh it's it's pretty good i must say but that just the context there is that um, it has a lot of personal, uh, I have a lot of personal associations with the game, but in terms of actual importance to the video game world, um, it spawned what we now know as a genre called Metroidvania. It and Castlevania combined uh, create a genre called Metroidvania. It was, uh, Metroid, this was kind of one of the first, uh, it was a platformer exploration kind of game uh, that was massive for its time, for platformers specifically, and uh, the idea of having to find power-ups and use those power-ups to then go back to previous areas was a big deal. Uh, that's not something that really happened that often. And so uh, it, it, did, it, it did a lot for, for the platforming genre in general. Um, is that enough for it to actually be part of a Hall of Fame? I, I don't know, to be totally frank. I mean, this is probably one of the few games on the list that does come to me as a bit of a surprise. But I think as you start inducting more games into the video game Hall of Fame, uh, you are going to necessarily have to uh, loosen your standards a little bit. And so as hard for me as it is to say, I think this is one of those games where I think the standards are a little bit loose because I think popularizing a genre isn't necessarily enough to be inducted. But that's, I think, really its main its main thing here yeah i think this one gets more important with age i think this one looking back on it the gameplay mechanics and those metroidvania hallmarks were were i think sort of revolutionary but more so for what they spawned than what they were in metroid um and i think if you were to go back and and at the close of the nintendo life cycle say what were the most monumental games for the Nintendo Entertainment System, I'm not sure Metroid would have been on it. But looking back at what it is has become, um, I, I this was one I went back and forth on too, and ultimately, like you, decided to put it on my list um, as my final entrant. Um, 
just for that reason. And I think on that note, I think maybe we we can touch on just the other ones that are on the list and why we didn't choose them. Because for me, Metroid came down to um, I wanted to have four on my list and. Um, because it looked like, you know, with 16, there's four rows of four. I thought maybe they would be inducing, inducting four of these. Um, but the other ones all had palpable reasons that I did not choose them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Do we want to go through some of those that we did not choose? Sure. Okay. Um, how about this? We'll just kind of list them off. And if we have anything to say about them, we can uh, jump on in. Okay. Um, first one being asteroids. I didn't choose asteroids because I felt it was too much like space invaders mm-hmm. um i felt that space invaders already checked the box that asteroids would would fulfill in in terms of sort of the early the early round of entrance into the hall of fame i really like that everything that's inducted so far has a definite this is why this is here and there's nothing else here that does this uh, i felt it would have been duplicative with space invaders yeah i think the the only thing that I agree with you 100%, and I think the one thing from a game design standpoint that maybe Asteroids did, I don't know if it was Pac-Man or Asteroids that did this first, but the idea that when um, enemies or characters go off-screen, they don't disappear forever, they don't go into the garbage collector of the game. Uh, We talked about the garbage collector actually during our uh, What Remains of Edith Finch episode, but... um, the that that idea so in pac-man and asteroids both if you go off to the right you come over to the left uh that was pretty new um i don't think it really had too much of an impact though on gameplay it was more uh, i think galaga is probably the game that really made that impactful uh galaga was uh, a game that was very similar to a space invaders in terms of you know there's a horde of enemies on the top they shoot at you at the bottom uh, Galaga was different in that the enemies would actually come after you as well uh but when the enemies left the bottom of the screen gamers at the time would think, oh good, that's now out of my concern. I don't need to worry about that enemy anymore. But in Galaga, those enemies would actually come back and surprise players. And that was something that was pretty revolutionary. I think Asteroids kind of, and Pac-Man, probably the first games to do that. Uh, but that alone, I don't think is enough for it to necessarily be on the the uh, in the Hall of Fame. So Agreed. Next uh, up is Call of Duty. And I would say that when Call of Duty released, it was sort of neck and neck with um, the Battlefield series as the most popular PC first person shooter. And I think that we've already got we've got Doom on the list as the the first real first person shooter that popularized the genre, along with the um, Castle Wolfenstein. Um, but we've got Halo Combat Evolved already on the list, and one of the item, one of the games we chose for our picks was Half Life. And I thought, as a PC first-person shooter, Half Life was much more monumental than Call of Duty. Sure, Call of Duty had the uh, focus much more on the multiplayer aspect and the the team squad-based multiplayer stuff. Um, but I think Half Life deserves credit for spawning Counter Strike, which was really a pre cursor to call of duty itself we also have dance dance revolution i don't have much to say on that one i never was big into dance dance revolution so i couldn't really i couldn't justify putting it in Uh, i wouldn't doubt that it it is a selection though because i think it is uh, along with you know things like guitar hero rock band those rhythm game genres i mean this was and it's huge in japan you know um as a global thing i think it's pretty monumental 
I'm big in Japan as well. Oh, I see yeah. what you did there. Yep. Uh, so I, Dance Dance Revolution, just movement. Ugh, I don't know about that. Like that, yeah. that's contrary to everything I want in a video game. So, Amen, brother. Yep. Uh, King's Quest. Uh, you had talked about how I think you had mentioned earlier that mm-hmm. you had played King's Quest. Yeah, I really. I, this was when I got down to my final selection. It was came down to Metroid and King's Quest, and King's Quest. I think. The only reason I went with Metroid is because I think it's much more relevant. The the genre that it spawned is much more relevant today than the genre that King's Quest spawned is. King's Quest was really sort of um, one of the early, early adventure games. Um, it's a fantasy world, but the gameplay is very much adventure style. And while it was a massive massively influential throughout the 80s and 90s and really helped launch Sierra uh, in its early days. King's Quest was released back in 84 um, and Sierra was arguably the world's most important PC developer, PC game developer for much of the 80s and 90s. Looking back today, while it was Next up on my list, if I would put this in next, Metroid just edged, edged it out for how big the Metroidvania genre has become today. All right. Uh, Miss Pac-Man, is that the next one that is on our list here? It is. Arguably, uh, I think the better of the Pac-Mans. That's what a lot of Pac-Man fans would say. Yeah, um, agree. But as for why it is Hall of Fame material, are you aware? Do you know anything about it that makes it that much different than... I mean, if 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 what I've learned from uh, from... Wayne's World uh, is correct. The only difference is that Miss Pac-Man has a bow in her head. <laughs> I enjoy the game more. I think I enjoy the game more for my connection to the two-player tabletop version of the arcade game. And I like the fact that it does incorporate a two-player version of the game. Um, other than that, I ha- I don't think it's even really excusable to have Miss Pac-Man on this inductees finalist list when you already have Pac-Man in the in the hall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, and it's not the f- game. It's not the first game to have like a female protagonist or something like that. Right. Like that wouldn't be its draw. Uh, possibly it is. I don't know. Maybe that's it. It might be. I mean, I think the Metroid was sort of given the, the nod wink in, in their write up as being one of the first game, being the first game to have a female protagonist. But I mean, Ms. Pac-Man definitely predates Metroid by mm-hmm. almost a decade. Yeah. And and you know what? I guess that, half a half a decade. And that's not even fair too, because who knows if the pilot in the Galaga ships or the Space Invader ships, maybe those are females. So I think people forget. <laughs> it's possible. Yeah. Um, so uh, and then the lastly, I think lastly, I keep saying I think because I'm jumping around on my notes here a lot. Yeah, this is this is the final the final nominee, Tomb Raider. Speaking of female protagonists, yeah, I think for me, Tomb Raider didn't make the cut because. As monumental as the first game was, it didn't feel like it was really a new genre of anything. It was more monumental for the fact that it was a new character and um, a very sexualized character. And I think the Tomb Raider, I would argue that the newer Tomb Raiders are vastly better than than anything that even at the time playing Tomb Raider back when it was first back when it first came out, it was good, but it wasn't great. Um, it was, it didn't feel like I was experiencing something that was, um, generational when I played Tomb Raider at launch. I agree. A hundred percent. I agree. I remember the clunky controls. Uh, they didn't quite have it figured out how to move a character through 3d space yet. 
the draw distance was terrible because it had to be back then. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of there. I think you're right. It sold itself on the sexualization of the character. Um, the new Tomb Raider codes, I think people were probably more interested in that than they were interested in the actual game, I think. And I do remember the game being pretty difficult as well, probably because of the clunky controllers, I think. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the PC box shape was unique. Maybe that's uh, why it's in there. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, IDOS basically had a bunch of those trapezoid big box PC games at the time. And I remember I was working at Best Buy during this era, and it was an absolute nightmare trying to stock the shelves because the these trapezoid boxes would fall all over the damn place. <laughs> uh, maybe that's that. That had to have been some of the uh, some of the motivation for the design itself, right? It makes it unique and makes it stand out, but of course, it also makes it just cumbersome enough that it's going to have more attention paid to it. Kind of like how uh, I remember the Sears. I read a story about the Sears Robot catalog back when it was uh, first released, early 1900s or whenever it was. They made it much smaller than all other home shopping catalog type things. Because uh, they wanted it to be, st- they wanted it to be on the top of the stack. Whenever you know the women would be mm. cleaning the houses or whatever, they always wanted it to be on the top. Um, Brilliant work, yeah. So I wonder if the same kind of methodology there. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, I remember stocking the shelves there, and it was there were probably two or three different aisles of boxed PC games at, in, during this era, and they all sort of meshed together. And especially it wasn't just PC games. It was you know sort of edutainment type stuff and straight up programs and software applications. And so having that that different shape and it was all the IDOS stuff. So it was Tomb Raider. They had the, the PC version of Final Fantasy VII, things like that, that were recognizable game names. And your, your eye instantly got drawn to them because of the box difference on the shelf. And, and then you could see, oh, Tomb Raider. Yeah. Oh, Final Fantasy. Yeah. It, pretty, pretty genius. Speaking of genius, this closes out one more genius episode of the Masters of Unlocking podcast. You could, you should... Join us in conversation. Talk about what uh, talk about this episode. Let us know uh, if you feel that there should have been different games inducted into the video game Hall of Fame. Uh, tell us if our picks were right. Tell us if our picks. Well, don't tell us if our picks were wrong. We don't want to hear that. Only tell us how <laughs> great we are. Uh, you can find us online. Uh, you can give us your thoughts and opinions at uh, our podcast uh, handles are. Um, at MOU Podcast on Twitter. You can go to mastersofunlocking.com to find links to all of these places in case you are not writing them down vigorously right now, which shame on you if you're not. You can find us at facebook.com forward slash mastersofunlocking, or you can even uh, communicate to us individually. Oh, you can also find us at Instagram forward slash mastersofunlocking. Um, you can cr- you can communicate to us individually. Uh, Scott is at VG Collectaholic on Twitter. I, uh, and also uh, facebook.com forward slash VG Collectaholic or VG Collectaholic.com, where you can find all the links in case you are not writing them down vigorously. But again, shame on you. Instagram.com forward slash VG Collectaholic. And uh, you can find me at Caleb J. Ross on Twitter at or CalebJRoss.com. Um, and basically anywhere, just look for at Caleb J. Ross. That's probably me, um, unless they're doing something that would uh, be uh, gross and disgusting and terrible and might put me in legal questions. Then it's not. Then it's definitely else. him. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> you found me out. <laughs> so please subscribe uh, to this podcast if you are listening just one off. I, we definitely encourage you to subscribe. We release, we release episodes um, once every couple of weeks, generally on Mondays. Um, leave us a review, please. That would be fantastic. A review on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever uh, podcastery you happen to be listening to. 
this through, please leave us a, a, a review. We would really, really, really appreciate it. Um, if you can't do a review, even just a Twitter message saying how awesome our podcast is, uh, or seriously, though, where you think maybe we could do better. That would be helpful as well. So uh, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, uh, insert catchphrase. And remember, you only have one month left to get your order in. Or two months left, I'm sorry, to get your order in for the inside. And once Real you get doll collectors. And once you get your order in, then you'll be able to get lots of other things. Namely, oh, rest. <laughs> talk, talk, talk about Talking about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's <laughs>